Inside Chicago Government. ShyGov.com. Welcome to another in a series of interviews with Ben Jarofsky. I'm Dave Gloatz. Ben Jarofsky writes on government and politics for the Chicago Reader, and he's on the phone with me. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing well. That's good. <laughs> today, today we're talking about your article that appeared in the Reader on February 21st, 2013. Yeah. Yeah. It's titled, The City Council Rules Committee, Where Good Legislation Goes to Die. Great article. Great headline. All right. Well, that article describes how a city council proposal that might challenge the status quo gets buried in committee. And you use the example of how a resolution to suspend a charter school development got laid to rest in the council's rules committee. Let's talk about logistics of things going to committee. When an alderman makes a proposal and another alderman moves that it be sent to a committee, is there a vote on that motion typically? No, there is not. The way it works is, let's say uh, you, Dave, had an ordinance dealing with bicycling in the city of Chicago. You were an alderman, let's say, and you wanted to go to transportation. Uh, the custom in the council is that any one alderman can divert that ordinance to another committee, usually the Rules Committee, which is a committee that's largely set up to be a burial ground for legislation or ordinances or proposals that the mayor does not want discussed. So your ordinance on bicycling would end up in rules as opposed to transportation. Let's dissect this just for a second. So I make that proposal, and then let's say I have one of my allies poised to, right after I finish making the proposal, move to send it to the Transportation Committee. Is that how the gamesmanship is, that, you know, I've got to be ready on the draw right after that so one of Emmanuel's allies doesn't jump in and make the motion first? I would not doubt, I don't know if this has ever happened, that let's say you were poised to do such a thing. Knowing the city council and the way things work in Chicago, I think they could just send it to rules anyway. And then later on they would say, oh, you didn't hear Alderman Dave? Alderman Ben moved to have it go to rules. What I'm saying is, no pun intended here, the rules were meant to be controlled by the mayor and his operatives, and that's generally how it works. So if they want it to go to rules, it's going to rules. Then the fight becomes getting rules, the rules committee, to hold a hearing on it or to get it moved out of rules. You could get it moved out of rules by a majority vote of the city council. Let's stop there for a second. The rules committee, which is actually called the Committee on Committees, Rules, and Ethics, has 50 members. <laughs> what a name. Put ethics in the name. That's right. <laughs> oh, in the name. That's the same committee that approved the new members of the ethics board. Oh, yeah. Okay. Speaking of contradictory <laughs> terms, yes, go ahead. You wrote that it's possible to, to get a proposal out of the rules committee that it requires a simple majority of 26 votes. That is correct, Senator. But I have here in my hand... The uh, document that's called the City Council Rules of Order. Okay. It talks about what all the rules are for voting and motions and all that stuff. And it's uh, got a couple, three dozen, 40-some rules in it. And rule number 39 says that a quorum for standing committees, of which the Rules Committee is one, is half of its membership. So the quorum for the Rules Committee is 25, which means that if there are 25 members of the council present for a Rules Committee meeting, they can hold the meeting. And rule number 19 says only members present shall be permitted to vote. 
So based on all that, isn't it possible to get something passed out of the Rules Committee with only 13 votes? I guess. How many votes did you say, 13? Say that you had 25 people show up for a meeting, that's the quorum, so a majority of 25 would be 13. Yes, I presume it's possible. It would be interesting parliamentary showdown, but... I'd say it would be virtually impossible to get 13 people to vote against the mayor. So it could be be 25, it could be 13, it could be infinity for all that matters. That's the larger point that uh, Alderman Rick Munoz was making in his interview with me. You know, there's all these rules and technicalities and parliamentary procedures, but the bottom line comes down to this. How many aldermen are willing to publicly vote against the mayor? I'm trying to think at most on any issue since Mayor Rahm took over. I can't recall, Dave, has it, what's the most it's been, 20 on one? Most issues, we are lucky to have a six, I guess, or seven maybe. But on a matter of great importance to them, like charter schools, I just can't see more than six or seven, and that's uh, what Munoz said as well. So all these technicalities mean nothing if you can't round up some aldermen willing to vote against the mayor. And risk getting yelled at over the phone. <laughs> Yes, get, risk getting yelled at, or worse. I'm still waiting to hear one of those calls. I know, I, these legendary calls where he yells and screams, I've heard a lot about them, but I... I want tape. I want tape. I've never been subjected to one, although, as I, I know we've talked about, I once had the mayor hang up on me, so that's as close as I've come. Was that Daly? No, Mayor Emanuel. Well, he was, excuse me, he was candidate man, Emanuel at the time. This was when he was running for mayor right before the 2011 election, and he called me up after I had been begging for an interview. I had been told I would be given five minutes of his time. That was all. Uh, he actually ended up giving me, my memory says, about 11 minutes. And then he just tired of my <laughs> questions and hung up on me. You wrote about this, didn't you? I did indeed. I, yeah. I presume we talked about it at some point. Listeners, you can find a link to the City Council Rules of Order by going to the description of this interview at shygov.com. Let's talk about this article. You write... What happened to the old Alderman Mel, who stood on his desk and thundered against mayoral autocracy? And you ask Mel, why are you pimping for Mayor Emanuel? This is, to me, a fundamental question as regards the city council. What are the ties that bind those in power in City Hall? Why do the powerful like Mel and Emanuel support each other? Well, I think it's like a mutual surviving uh, network. Emanuel, clearly, when he took over, let's answer the the Emanuel part of that equation first, made a very calculated decision not to challenge whatever trappings of power that the old timers had. Like Mel, Burke. Well, yeah, Burke was the one where everybody would say, oh, you know, because they were on the opposite sides of the mayoral race. Burke endorsed a different candidate, Gary Chico, and Burke, although he never admitted to this, is widely viewed as someone who supported the effort to knock Emanuel off the ballot. Remember the residency requirement. I know this is ancient history to everyone. And there was a lot of tension between Burke and Emanuel after Emanuel uh, won, but Emanuel very quickly made it clear that he wasn't going to challenge Burke's authority as chairman of the Finance Committee. Uh, there was a few minor changes that Emanuel made, largely uh, for face-saving purposes. But remember, they embraced <laughs> yeah, and one of the things that Manuel helped orchestrate is he had someone who was clearly an ally of his, namely Alderman O'Connor, broker a deal in which Burke retained chairmanship of the Finance Committee, and O'Connor got chairmanship of a new committee, the Committee on Workforce Development and Audit. It's easier for Mayor Rahm Emanuel to support and ally himself with Ed Burke than to fight Ed Burke. 
And similarly, it's easier, more beneficial for Ed Burke to support Mayor Rahm than fight him. And as you know, we really haven't had anything resembling a check and balance system in Chicago government since the 1980s when we had council wars. And I was alluding to that in my article when I talked about uh, Mel, but the same allusion can be made to Burke because, as you know, Dave, Burke and Mel were leaders of the anti-Harold Washington coalition in the city council. And the argument they made then was that the city needed a vigilant city council to make sure that the mayor didn't exceed his powers. Well, as we all know, they reserved that argument for Harold Washington, the city's only elected black mayor, and they have since dropped that argument when we have elected uh, white mayors. There's only been two since Harold does, because we love the mayors so much, we just keep electing them, Richard Daly, of course, and now Rahm Emanuel. So no need for vigilance when Mayor Rahm's the mayor. Let's jump into the realm of hypothesis. If Jesse Jackson had not crashed and burned and ended up becoming mayor of Chicago, how do you think this landscape would have changed with regard to, you know, co-opting the powerful aldermen? Would he have had a similar relationship, do you think, to the city council? I appreciate the question, but it's just so hard for me at this moment to speculate about Jesse Jackson becoming mayor because it's obvious now to me that Jesse Jackson Jr. had a lot of serious problems mental problems. And I'm not just talking about the ones that, you know, the Jackson family sort of attributes to his downfall where where he's depressed or what have you. I'm just talking about, he just seems to be a person who uh, could not really control his impulses, to put it mildly. And so thought rules didn't apply to him. So it's my long-winded way of saying that in retrospect, I can't imagine Jesse Jackson Jr. having the discipline needed to be elected mayor of Chicago. But I'll give you another example to play along with your question, and that is Tony Preckwinkle. If Tony Preckwinkle were to run against Mayor Emanuel in 2015 and defeat him, I believe that the aldermen would bow down to her as well, and that the element that drove the Burks and the Mells and the Verdoliaks of the world to act as the protector of Chicago's interests in regard to Harold Washington was, of course, the racial element. And the notion of a black mayor, particularly a politician like Harold Washington, having power was very frightening to white people in Chicago in a way that I don't believe it would be as frightening uh, today, especially with someone like Tony Preckwinkle. Especially since she has what's arguably the the second most powerful job in this area, which is the county board president. She won the primary, as you know, Dave, I think there was one white candidate and four black candidates, and she won. So the, the notion, the old notion that white people will always vote for the white person, and well, Black people have always been willing to vote for uh, white people. But the notion that white people will always vote for the white person in a race in which the opposition is a black candidate, I think, has been laid to rest in Chicago. For once, we can end on a hopeful note. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Dave. Listeners, do you have something you'd like to hear me and Ben talk about? You can send us a tweet on Twitter or post a message on our Facebook page, search for Inside Chicago Government, or you can send us an email via contact at shygov.com. On your web, go to shygov.com, that's C-H-I-G-O-V, to subscribe to one of our article or podcast feeds. I'm Dave Glowatz. Thanks for listening.